Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray and with me by Squadcast is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies. And we have a cool show tonight. Uh, this is a recorded interview on a subject that I think will be of great interest to a lot of people in Mendocino County. Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, we're quite fortunate to have Marav, Dr. Marav Ben-David. I just fir first met her up in Alaska years ago when we were both working on Exxon Valdez oil spill and she was working on uh, river otters and uh, whether they got exposed or not to oil, that sort of thing. And there's a wide variety of interests in mammalian ecology and physiology. Um, she's a professor at the University of Wyoming in the Department of Zoology and Physiology. And uh, welcome to the show, Marav. Thanks, Bob. It's good to see you again after all these years. Yes. And um, we usually ask our guests if they would, uh, you know, kind of fill us in on their background, how they got interested in what they do and, and uh, kind of what their, what their current position is and so forth. Gladly. Uh, I was born and raised in Israel uh, on a small farm and the main activity that I can remember as a small child is having people bring wounded wild animals to me and uh, spending hours and hours rehabilitating them. And those interactions of, as a small child um, cemented my desire to be a wildlife biologist. And uh, that's what I pursued uh, after I uh, finished my service in the Israeli Air Force. I uh, went to um, Tel Aviv University where I got my undergraduate and master's degrees in biology and zoology. And then was fortunate enough to meet Dr. Dave Klein from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And he invited me to come and work on otters in Alaska. And uh, I made a, a big move both uh, geographically uh, and weather-wise, from warm climes to the, the colds of Alaska, and um, did my PhD. Fairbanks, no less. <laughs> yeah, Fairbanks, exactly. Yeah. They had a very, very uh, early cold snap right now. So, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, as you mentioned, Bob, you and I met when uh, I joined a team that studied river autos uh, and the effects of the Exxon Valdez oil spill on them. Uh, and um, ever since then, I've been working on river autos in various systems, uh, freshwater and marine, um, all across the Western United States. And I could say that uh, if not my favorite species to work on, they're definitely the main contributor to my uh, academic career. So. And you were at uh, Davis for a little while uh, doing something with mountain lions, I think, weren't you? Yes, I collaborated with yeah. uh, Rick Schweitzer, who back then was uh, working at UC Davis, and we had a mountain lion pig project that we worked on together. All right. And, and this, most recently, I've been uh, helping some river otter researchers in California, uh, in San Francisco Bay, with some of their analyses, so... Still working in California. All right, good. Tell us a little bit about river otters. Just give us some background on their kind of natural life history and how long they live and when they reproduce. And uh, Sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I'm 
very interested in river otters, uh, besides the fact that they are, uh, one, as I said, one of the cutest animals and very uh, appealing to, uh, I think everybody who ever saw an otter, either a, a living one in the wild or in a zoo or in a film, realizes that they have a certain appeal of being very playful and, and intriguing uh, and very... Um, yeah, they have a lot of personality. <laughs> they sure have a lot of personality. I fell in love with one when I was a child at the San Francisco Zoo. <laughs> it was yeah, fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot, a lot of people uh, fall in love with them when they see them in zoos. They are, they have fantastic antiques, and they're very, very cute. But they're more interesting than just cute because they show extremely high flexibility in in the social organization and they can be highly highly social we in alaska have seen uh, coastal alaska have seen large groups of up to 21 individuals uh, and they can also be solitary in fact um they they are they can easily change their uh social interaction based on the conditions the ecological conditions they encounter and therefore, they, they provide an excellent uh, model species to look at the effects of different environmental conditions like food availability, uh, water quality, and others on, on sociality. So as a social species ourselves, humans, we are very curious to know why, under what conditions, some of us are more social and some of us are less. Is it all genetics? Is nurturing has an underpinning there but you know it, it's very hard to separate us from ourselves as study species so looking at other model species such as river otters is extremely useful and interesting and we are finding that that um, otters are indeed um, an excellent model system for that and what we found that um, in places where communal or cooperative foraging is beneficial, river otters will create large groups. And most of these groups are composed of males, not so many females. Um, and females mostly remain solitary. And uh, that has to uh, do with the reproductive cycle and how mobile the pups are or kids or cubs, depending on how you want to call them. It's still a debate on how we call other babies. But really, it is interesting that here you have a species where males are highly, highly social. Uh, most mammals, it's usually females that form the, the social groups, uh, especially in carnivals. So otters are unique that way. However, when conditions are such that um, uh, helping females, helping each other is beneficial, then female otters will form large groups. Uh, in, in San Francisco Bay, um, a previous student of mine recorded large female groups. In fact, several females um, congregating and leaving the pups uh, with one or two of them and the others go out foraging. So, and then the main risk there is predation by coyotes. At least that's what Reagan Rothstein found. So uh, this ability to shift socially under different conditions 
and we're talking about exactly the same species, uh, is, is really an interesting system. So the, the males uh, often will do the foraging for the females that are perhaps staying in the, in the burrow with, with the pups, but then- No, they, no, they no, the males, the females, uh, if they can, would join, would join a male group. The I males see. forage for themselves. The advantage they get from cooperatively foraging is that uh, they can herd schooling fish uh, and by herding the schools, each animal can, can grab a fish. If you think about herring or sandlands or capelin or even salmon, the, the cooperative foraging is uh, creating a net around the school of fish, herding the, the fish so they can't escape. And then each animal grabs a mouthful. So that um, the only, so there is, there are cases, I would say, that an, one otter would feed another, uh, in addition to mothers feeding their young, of course, bringing prey to their young. We observed a non-related or a related, but not mother, bring in uh, fish for what we thought were her sibling from a different litter, so second litter, and uh, this female was already an adult. Um, and what we've seen is um, in males, is there was an injured male that made uh, pup sounds, and the other members of the group gave him a fish, or <laughs> several times gave him, bought him fish. But I think those occasions are really rare. Mostly it is the males forage on these pelagic fishes, the schooling fishes together, and uh, the females would join a male groups in within her home range if she can leave her pups in the den. I see. So they, so the, the female will den up to raise the pups. Maybe talk a little bit about the, the reproductive strategy and how that, how that works, because we see them out a lot but we don't really see their dens very much so i'm not uh, familiar with you know how that works and do the males den or is it only the females you know where do they go when they're not out catching fish when they're not <laughs> out uh, catching fish or playing in the on the banks or in the water they they do den and uh we saw the male groups uh den together and when we had captive otters at the Alaska Sea Life Center after the Exxon Valdez oil spill, um, they uh, they nested in the same boxes together. We would have you know thirteen animals in a box, wow. uh, so they can be really social. The females then uh, again mostly alone. Um, in most systems, they den alone and they would raise their pups. They do have a very interesting reproductive cycle. They have what we call a postpartum estrus, meaning that the female gives birth and within days she uh, gets into heat again, goes into heat again and mates. But the embryos uh, don't immediately uh, implant in the uterus, they float. Uh, as around 64 to 128 cells, we call them blastocysts, 
and they just float in the uterus. We don't know how they survive um, for up to, to up to 10 months. And then they implant and they go through a two months or so pregnancy, just over two months pregnancy. So the females have basically embryos in her uterus, viable, but not, she's not pregnant while she's nursing and raising the litter from this year. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we isn't that like um, seals and sea lions do the same yes. thing? Yes, yes, exactly. There are actually multiple species of mammals that have delayed implantation. Most of them are in the carnivora. Uh, bears are like that, seals. Uh, but but there are others, uh, such as armadillos and deer, even the deer that have delayed implantation. Hmm. Uh, and so evolutionary, here's another reason why otters are interesting, because they're part of this group. And we don't know uh, evolutionarily, you know, why some individuals we we have we have hypotheses and theories about why some species have delayed implantation and some do not. Uh, but but you know, it's still a, an enigma and uh, yeah. something that I keep studying uh, with otters and other mustelids, um, such as uh, I should say mustelloides. Uh, because skunks are separate from the otters and the martens and the weasels, but they are closely related. So in skunks, we are studying uh, delayed implantation. So for how how long, how many years do the uh, females uh, remain in kind of reproductive uh, uh, capacity, either, either caring for pups or, or uh, actually pregnant? Females become... Uh, reproductive when they're a year old, but it will take them another whole year before they give birth. So the first time they give birth, they're two. Um, and um, then, depending on their survival, if if they can survive, they can be pregnant all the way you know, until they're eight. Uh, the oldest uh, otter we've ever sampled was 13, but there is a record uh, from uh, a carcass that was collected by a trapper that was then aged using uh, cementum annuli, and that was 19 years old. But most of the otters die young. Unfortunately, many of them, when they leave their mother, uh, don't make it. They perish because uh, obtaining you know, enough food to survive is difficult if you're an otter. You have high metabolism, very high metabolism, and you need to dive to catch your, your food most of the time. And so uh, we calculated that at least in Alaska, coastal Alaska, the average uh, longevity is three and a half years. As I said, very few individuals can live a long time. And then... I think females, given that lo longevity is limited, uh, Probably females breed every year that they are alive. And and how many pups does a female have at a time? Just one? No, they can have they can have up to five, uh -huh. uh, but rarely do they raise more than two or three. It's very energetically expensive to raise more than two or three. Yeah, we had a, just finished a project in Olympic National Park. 
uh, on hotels where we had uh, video cameras out, trail cameras, and got a lot of videos. And we had most of the littles were two pups. One had three, and one had one, and all the others were two pups. So it seems to be the most prevalent little size is two. Is that, I presume that's a, in, at least in part a function of food availability if there's a yes. if they're in a really high food rich area like like a harbor or something where they can get lots of fish they tend to have more pups at a time yes um harbors are not the best places for otters because of uh contamination uh -huh. um, oil spills and pcbs and other um and PCBs especially can harm reproductive output. So uh, we are actually finding that that uh, otters do better outside of harbors, but they can find fish anywhere. Uh, those fish come uh, into the near shore environment in the coast, or, or you know, spawning streams in lake systems, uh, such as Yellowstone. We did a big project on otters in Yellowstone in relation to the. Uh, illegal introduction of lake trout and yeah otters take advantage of fish spawning and making uh, spawning migrations into streams look locally in the Noyo river the where we have a harbor it's relatively busy uh, there's uh, at least one family yeah uh, group I don't, I don't know if it, <laughs> it could be all males but there's a uh, four or five that we saw there, I think people up in Fort Bragg see them frequently. Well, the, I think they raised about, I think they did three pups last year because they, they doubled the size of the group. It was three otters last year and it's six now. Yeah, it is possible. As I said, they show very high uh, flexibility in those social interactions and can, can be, uh, mostly when we see multiple otters, it's either a mother with pups or a, a group of males. Mm -hmm. we, we get interested in how people find out what they know about, uh, you know, a species like uh, river otters. Um, how do you age the river otters? Is it with teeth, uh, the layers, the cementum and so forth? And yeah, so mammals uh, have teeth and every year uh, they put another layer of dentin uh, in the, on the tooth and we can pull a tooth out from a live animal, just like the dentist does. Uh, we, we pull a, what we call a vestigial premolar that they don't really need. It's a tooth that is uh, rarely used. Uh, and then we uh, send it to a specialized lab and they s section it and they can count those rings. We call them cementum annuli. Um, and that that is very accurate uh, way of aging animals. To um, follow otters is not easy. Uh, we can we develop techniques to trap them, live trap them. They're very safe and work pretty well. But otters are exceedingly smart animals, and they uh, once uh, they see a group member getting caught, it's very difficult to get the rest of them to get caught again. In fact, we have uh, videos of otters 
uh, after we trapped one of the group members and we instrumented them with either a radio implant or nowadays we have new technology called uh, proximity uh, loggers uh, that we glue to their fur on their back. Uh, but when they, once they see one member of the group trapped, uh, first of all, they come to help. We had several cases in, in various projects where we had an otter in a trap and the rest of the group came and tried to attack us when we were handling it. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, kind of a, an unexpected complication. I would think that'd be kind of dangerous. They're, uh, they can be kind of fearsome with those teeth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a few skulls on me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad it's a radio. I can't show the, the, the listeners the, my skulls, but I do have some skulls on me. Uh, they do have, uh, you know, big teeth. But uh, the main thing is once you trap one member of a group, you can't catch the rest of them. In fact, as I said, we had in the last cases where uh, we had video, the trail cameras on, on the latrines where we tried to capture the otters and they would, uh, one of them after a trapping encounter, one of them would come very gently remove the, the uh, duff that we put on top of the trap expose the trap and then start rolling all around and all the other group members just run around basically laughing at us uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's really really difficult to trap them or retrap them so all the way on all, all the data most of the data we have on autos nowadays comes from what we call non-invasive genetic sampling and basically what we do, in addition to putting cameras on sites, uh, we collect uh, the feces and put hair snails that are, um, the others don't get caught in them. They just uh, leave hair samples on. And we amplify the DNA from the feces and the hair and identify individual animal, individual otters from their hair and feces, which is, wow. yeah. So we have new techniques that uh, really make our ability to track them and f find out how far they go, how many of them there are, even what's their survival rate yeah. for non-invasive genetic sampling. So, so once you find their latrine sites, uh, is, is that kind of let you know where to kind of focus your efforts on the uh, uh, trapping or, or getting hair samples or whatever you need. Yep, absolutely. Autos show high fidelity to certain locations that we call latrine sites. It's basically the uh, billboards. Think about, you know, you want to advertise something. Hmm. Where are you going to put your billboard on the highway? Right where everybody can see it and, and know that, oh, there is a, you know, a restaurant on the next exit or a gas station. Uh, so they use olfaction, the sense of smell, to uh, communicate with each other, like most mammals. And so they um, select specific locations. Uh, and we found similarities in what the latrines look like in various systems, both freshwater, you know, streams, lake, coast. Um, and they um, use those locations to uh, deposit feces and urine and what we call anal jellies, which are uh, 
excretion from the anal gland to communicate with each other. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, the message is complicated. Uh, first of all, each individual has their own scent, individual scent. And so uh, you can identify, they can identify each other based on what the fecal sample smells like. And also we found that because males are more social, they're more uh, keen on visiting latrines and scent marking and uh, sniffing and over marking than females. Females seem to use fewer, I mean, more latrines, but fewer times, less intensity, and mostly to uh, mark their territories. I see. Males more communicate with each other. Hey, guys, where did you go? I want to, you know, join you fishing. And females are more, hey, this is my territory. Don't come near my pups. So Interesting. The differences mm -hmm. in the message. And then Just, the, these latrines are... Are uh, how far away from their dens do they usually leave these? Uh, the latrines are spread all along the coast, um, and they are mostly found on prominent points of land where the wind can carry the scent up and down. Ah. Uh, we found that otters like really big rocks. They like rocks because they're usually, uh, you know, stand out and and again. The wind can carry the scent up and down. Uh, they they do prefer sites where there is a lot of overstory cover, so they don't have to worry about who is flying overhead. Um, so yeah, so they have very specific characteristics that the autos select for. So they go to some effort to to get to these latrines and and find a spot that works for them. Yeah, some of these have been used for. I would say millennia, thousands wow. of years. Uh, oh, really? yeah. What we see is, wow. yeah, uh, if, if you look at the coastline of the Pacific coastline uh, from the end of the previous glaciation, uh, and you'll see how um, the glaciers have receded, every place that was exposed from glaciers that was prominent uh, was colonized by, so the otters usually, uh, we see it even today in Glacial Bay, for example, where the glaciers are receding, the otters come in into those bays and establish latrines on the most prominent points. And these are then used for millennia. Even though an otter may not live more than three or four years, uh, their latrines can be on the landscape for thousands of years. All right. So if you've just joined us, uh, we're talking with Marav Ben-David, Dr. Marav Ben-David, University of Wyoming. Uh, she's a mammologist and uh, has uh, published quite a few papers on river otters and uh, one of her main interests. And uh, and so uh, it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Um, maybe you could uh, tell our uh, visitors a little bit about the habitats that the, that the, uh, uh, river otters inhabit. And I know a lot of people think, well, if it's in the ocean, it's a sea otter. If it's uh, in the river, it's a river otter. But river otters do, uh, I know, 
at least sometimes uh, are in the marine environment. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think the name river otter is uh, misleading because if you look at the abundance of the, what we prefer to call North American otter, uh, Lontra canadensis, the scientific name, if you summed up all the otters in North America, most of them will actually be living in marine environments. And not just estuaries where rivers are, uh, flow into the ocean. But we have many, many, many study areas where there are no rivers. There are sometimes not even streams within the home ranges of these otters. And the only way these otters access fresh water is in ponds and uh, water pooling under the, the root system of large trees. Hmm. Uh, so uh, the, I keep saying that I have otters that I have handled or watched that probably have never seen a river in their lives. I've seen this several times actually on the Mendocino coast, otters crossing you know, the beach to get into the water. And in at least one spot up off Ward Avenue, uh, there's a big, long beach, big, long, sandy beach. And behind the beach is just a big, uh, what's called a fen of sand dunes and these low-lying uh, swales between the dunes. There's no stream there whatsoever. And so, yeah, those are not river, those are not river otters. <laughs> they're they're uh, sand dune and surf otters, I guess you'd say. So that's, the the key question there is where do they find fresh water in those fens and it must be those little swales and ponds yes they need fresh water not only for drinking but also to rinse the coats uh -huh. uh, sea otters if you watch the sea otter which rarely comes out of the water um, sometimes you can find them sun basking on some rocks in the middle of the ocean or near the shore. Uh, but they really don't need to come on shore for any reason. They mate in the ocean, they give birth in the ocean, they raise their young in the ocean. Unlike sea otters, river otters or North American otters definitely need to come, they need land, they need to come to shore and they need fresh water to rinse their coats. Sea otters can groom themselves off the salt, but uh, North American otters cannot. They need to uh, rub the salt off and preferably wash it off. And so they come and they look for um, basically any pond or indentation that has fresh water to roll in and rinse their coats. And they need to do that because unlike seals and sea lions and whales that rely on blubber to uh, maintain body heat in diving in cold water, uh, sea otters and river otters uh, rely only on the fur. Basically air bubbles that are trapped inside the coats provide them with uh, the thermal regulation they need not to lose body heat into the cold water. So they need to maintain their coats in, um, you know, with a lot of air. And to do that, it turns out that salt 
prevents the hair from separating. It, it's sticky. And so in order to get air bubbles into the coats, the otters have to uh, rinse off the salt. And when you look at otter latrines, uh, they always have some sort of fresh water in them or that there are extensive uh, areas of land that they can rub and, and get the salt off that way. Now in freshwater, they don't have that problem. All they have to do is dry off. In fact, many people that have seen a river otter spend three, four, five, six minutes rolling and rubbing and rubbing and rolling and drying their coat, hopping right back in the water. And people ask me, why do they do that? They just spend so much time drying off. And I'm like, yeah, they do it just because they need to get back in the water. And without drying their coat and retaining the, or rebuilding the air layer, uh, they will be too cold to swim. So, so they actually, unlike us, you know, after we dry off, we are not necessarily ready to jump back in the water. They do it too be able to jump back in the water. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so they've, they've got similar kind of challenges uh, in terms of high metabolism and maintenance of body heat at, between sea otters and river otters. But somehow the, the sea otters don't don't deal, that their hair doesn't have to face the same challenges, right? As the, uh... the hair does, but they have an ability to groom the salt off. They oh. actually, they actually consume the salt and then excrete it from a special gland. Oh, river otters like don't a... have that gland. Yeah, yeah otters don't have the same gland as sea otters. So what sea otters can do in, in seawater, uh, because they have evolved for you know millions of years as a marine mammal, river otters uh, are not a true marine mammal in that respect. They, they, they don't have the blubber and they don't have the ability to excrete salt. So they need to drink fresh water and they need to uh, rinse their coats in fresh water. Yeah. Interesting. So that, that kind uh, sea, of... Sea otters can dive a lot deeper than river otters as well. Um, you know, sea otters have a much higher oxygen carrying capacity in their blood and other tissues, myoglobin, uh, and river otters can dive a lot shorter dives and not as deep. Evolutionarily, they uh, how far apart are these two otters? Are they part of the same family, or uh, they evolve independently uh, out of different uh, ancestors? Or yeah, they have a, they have a joint ancestor, but millions and millions of years ago. And uh, actually, our sea otters, the North American sea otters, are more closely related to the Euro-Asian otters than they are to the North American otters. Um, they diverged uh, a long time ago, millions of years ago. So um, it's interesting because there are a lot of little hints that, that show you that that relation, evolutionary relationship. For example, um, Eurasian otters look like North American otters externally. They, you know, they look yeah, very they similar. Do, yeah. But your Asian otters can swim on their back like sea otters. Oh. And North American otters cannot. Mm. I mean, they can flip around, but they cannot maintain that position. Again, it's internal structures and, and the skeleton and stuff. So when you, you know, what seems 
to the naked eye as, oh, Eurasian authors must be more closely related to North American authors. No, actually, they're more closely related to uh, sea authors. Yeah, that is. They take some experts sometimes in, in genetics, genetic analysis to, to reach that conclusion. Yeah, I think you know we see uh, we see the North American otter in the nearshore marine a lot here, and people often mistake them for sea otters. But that long tail completely gives the game away there. Right, the yeah. sea otter yes. doesn't have hardly, and it. So this explains something to me that I was curious about was uh, whether these two seemingly similar species are competitors in the in the same environment, and it sounds like they're not. They have diverged so long ago and they have very different diets and completely different ways of obtaining food is that right yes um sea otters mostly rely on invertebrate prey okay. uh shellfish um mollusks abalone little otters eat those urchins. things only little otters eat any of these things only when uh they have no other choice um, during the Exxon oil spill, we saw uh, a convergence of diets. Uh, river otters in the oiled areas uh, ate more of the uh, invertebrates uh, than what would we call a normal river otter or North American otter diet, which is mainly fish. Just because the fish disappeared and they had very little other uh, food to eat. So uh, the, there will be overlap, some overlap in diet uh, under very uh, extreme conditions. In fact, the, in the Aleutian Islands, sometimes sea otters eat fish uh, when they don't have uh, invertebrates. So, uh, so they can overlap in diet under certain circumstances, but it's very rare. So, yeah, the, and the right. river, the North American otter also has, I think you mentioned this earlier, they have a very diverse diet at times. Uh, I, I know I personally, one of the strangest things I've ever seen was uh, an otter in a an inland a freshwater lagoon uh, down on the Man Manchester coast, uh, swam out into the lagoon and killed a an adult Pacific, or not a Pacific, but common loon yes. which is a very large bird common loons can weigh eight to ten pounds as adults yeah. and uh and this otter swam right out in the middle of the lagoon grabbed it killed it and swam back to shore with it and i we were all astonished to see it we had no idea they would do that yes they do uh they do eat uh seabirds when they have a chance uh, i have seen uh an encounter that was amazing where a merganzel hen had about 12 um, little ducklings. Well, they weren't very little. They were already feathered, and they were swimming behind, but they couldn't fly. Um, and they were swimming behind her in a, in a little cove in Alaska, and uh, an otter came out of the rocks and started uh, diving behind the... Uh, the mergansas and trying to catch them from underneath. And as soon as that started going on, happening, 
a bald eagle came from above. So whenever the mergansos try to, you know, run on the water and escape the otter, the bald eagle um, dive bombed them, actually killed, managed to kill several of them that way. And then the mm -hmm. otter would come from underneath. So between the otter and the bald eagle, coordinating the effort, uh, I think the hen was left with just two ducklings by the end of that. Wow. It all happened just, you know, me sitting there watching. It was incredible. Yeah. So, yes, they, they they would eat small mammals. Um, you know, we've found uh, remains of, of voles uh, that come near, near the water. Um, in, in, for example, in Olympic National Park, we found a few voles. And in Yellowstone Lake system, we also see them eat amphibians, salamanders, uh, like a, a big item sometimes. Again, it all depends on what's available. In fact, in Yellowstone Lake, in our study on the effects of lake trout, uh, as cutter trout, the Yellowstone cutter trout uh, declined severely, we saw the otters switching to eat uh, more salamanders that, than they had before. So it was a response to a declining uh, main prey of Yellowstone cutthroat trout. And yeah, they, they ate salamanders. And we find, occasionally find frog remains, but the majority of the diet is fish, various kinds of fish. And what it seems to be is that unless the salmonids are uh, spawning, uh, they're very difficult to catch otherwise. And so in those cases, the otters will eat uh, more sedentary uh, in the marine environments. It will be intertidal, subtidal fish such as ronquil or gunnels or, or rockfish, sculpins, so, yeah, sculpins, yeah. yeah. So in freshwater too, yeah. I, I assume these latrine sites uh, offer a good way to study what, what the what these guys are eating. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, when we collect our feces for the DNA analysis, uh, we separate, we sieve the prey remains out of the um, sample and then send that to uh, labs that specialize on um, analyzing bone, fish bones. And fish bones and odorless odorless and things like yes, that right yes right. and we can um we can even tell how big the fish was not just uh what fish it was but how big it was if there was one fish or more in a, in a sample uh, yeah. yeah and more recently we've started using what we call dna barcoding to identify for example in salmonids many times it's very difficult to tell if it's a chinook or a pink or a you know, coho salmon or, or sockeye. So we have genetic markers and we can take the bones and extract the DNA from the bones and then identify to species and say, oh, you know. So is there any, any diet specialization uh, among the sea otters? Do you... Uh, river otter. Uh, excuse me, river otters. Uh, do you find uh, that certain individuals uh, uh, specialize in certain kinds of fish? Or is it just this group behavior? They're kind of all cutting, eating about the same thing at the same time. So we have not found, unlike uh, sea otters, where uh, my colleagues 
who study them have shown that uh, the mother teaches her young what prey to eat and how to catch that prey. Uh, in river otters, we don't see individual uh, specialization. Uh, and I think it's because they're so uh, flexible socially that they can learn from other individuals. Uh -huh. uh, again, it ties back to the flexibility. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, even if a female may teach her young how to uh, catch, let's say, sculpins, um, the, as soon as the young joins a, another group or uh, even the, the female joins a male group, uh, they're so flexible that they will learn from that encounter. So I don't, uh, we don't see, we have looked at it. Uh, we have the ability to look at it because we have the, the, um, the genetic profile. So we know who is the author that deposited what fecal sample that has what fish in it. So we can, and we have looked at this, but uh, we don't see any uh, specialization. Hmm. They're opportunistic, they're, they're fish predators, mainly fish predators, but they're opportunistic and have very high learning capacity. And because of their social flexibility, they learn uh, very quickly from even short encounters. So if you've just joined us or you're joining us quite late, uh, we have tonight Marav Ben-David, professor at the University of Wyoming, and a specialist, uh, although uh, a wide variety of interests, but specialized particularly in uh, the biology of river otters and their physiology and so forth. Published many papers. And uh, so... Um, so this is really, yeah, I, I think we're going to need two or three hours be, because I had no idea they, they were this complicated uh, with their s social structure and their uh, their ability to just sort of change gears and shift modes uh, from place to place and year to year is really fascinating. And it seems like it's made them, this it gives them a big adaptability and they're very successful. They're widely distributed and they don't seem like they're under any conservation pressure. So, uh, as you well know, river otters were extirpated from most of the range in North America. And that happened uh, with uh, the advancement of uh, trapping, uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s really saw, I mean, basically the economy of the United States was heavily dependent on, on fair trades and fair trapping. And basically river otters have been extirpated from the majority of the range, uh, except for marine coastal populations. And a lot of the reintroduction programs that now have reestablished river otters in uh, a lot of places, that they've been extirpated from uh, came the individuals were trapped in coastal environments and brought into freshwater systems and reintroduced them. Uh, for example, um, the large reintroduction that happened in Colorado in the 1980s and 90s, they were animals that were brought from Alaska and Washington and California coast and uh, Louisiana mixture of all kinds of coastal population. And that again shows you how flexible these animals are because you took animals that have never been in freshwater or had very little exposure to freshwater and you release them in, 
high elevation in the Colorado River system. And they, they're viable populations uh, in most of the waterways in Colorado nowadays. Um, in Missouri, they brought them from Louisiana and Florida, again, coastal population that survived the onslaught of trapping, were introduced into uh, freshwater systems in Missouri and Pennsylvania. Uh, nearly all the introduction programs, even the latest one in the San Juan River in New Mexico came from the Washington coast animals. So it is, uh, you know, when I say they're adaptable animals, I mean they're adaptable animals. Even individuals, you can take them from one one aquatic environment uh, where they, you know, they need to do a lot of, they basically have to invest a lot of time in getting salt off their coats. You put them in fresh water and they don't have to do that anymore, but they'll still you know, they still make it and, and survive and, and establish viable populations. So otters have been uh, extirpated. They are sensitive to two things, trapping and unregulated trapping and pollution. Again, the one thing that really helped with the reintroduction efforts back in the day was that we passed the Clean Water Act in the 1970s and really cleaned up a lot of our freshwater systems. Otters have been um, and still are one of our indicator species of aquatic ecosystem health. Without clean water, whether it's uh, marine or fresh water, uh, otters, otters cannot survive. They're very sensitive to, as I said before, uh, uh, hydrocarbons from oil spills, PCBs, uh, heavy metals, they're very sensitive to heavy metals. So, uh, and that is because they're top predators. Uh, a little pollution at the lower levels of the trophic level accumulate from invertebrates to fish, from fish to fish, from fish to otters. So they actually eat extremely polluted. You know, mercury is a classic example where otters really uh, concentrate uh, mercury and and that is detrimental to both their survival and their reproduction. So yeah, methyl, I imagine methyl mercury and then PCBs and DDTs and things like that, and yes. the, the bioaccumulate up the food web are problems. Exactly. And particularly told, in in yeah. the the oily, energy-rich foods tend to accumulate those preferentially, and so that's right. yeah, Correct. it's a lot of these top predator species that depend on that high-energy diet. And otters having high metabolic rate and having to eat more than 10% of their body mass a day. Wow. So an otter weighing 10 kilograms has to eat about a kilogram of fish every day. Hmm. And that's a lot of fish and that's a lot of contaminants that they consume. And that's why they we, we use them as an indicator of uh, aquatic ecosystem health. Because if there are no otters, something is very wrong with the system. Even if you see fish in there, that doesn't mean the fish are not contaminated. It's just that the levels that each fish has is not lethal. But when an otter eats, you know, a kilogram of them, then they're exposed to, you know, mm-hmm. orders of magnitude higher contamination. So mm-hmm. otters are very important. Another thing that makes uh, otters, North American otters, and other species of otters that show similar 
nearly every other species of the 13, or the, I should say other 12 uh, species of otters show similar flexibility, both in sociality and in adapt uh, habitat adaptability and, and flexibility in food. Uh, so North American otters and other species of otters across the world are really important in linking aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. What we've found is that the otters eating so many fish, just imagine how many fish are eaten and crayfish when they're available. And then they defecate, as we mentioned already, at latrine sites. They bring a lot of marine derived or aquatically derived nutrients from the aquatic system to the terrestrial and they fertilize the vegetation. When you have a garden, what do they tell you? The best fertilizer you can put on your garden is fish meal, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what the otters do. They, they bring fish meal from the aquatic system to the latrine sites. And what we've found is that they can really influence plant growth. And if you think about big trees, I told you that otters like big trees as overstory to protect from, uh, especially the, the pups from predation. Um, basically, they're fertilizing the trees and they can increase the ability of trees to capture carbon from the atmosphere two and a half times more than any tree growing on the same coastline, on the same lake shoreline than uh, mm -hmm. the ones on the trains. So really, uh, river otters are really important for our future if we talk about climate change because they enhance what we call the carbon sequestration capacity of the forest by fertilizing the trees with fish. Yeah, meat. a little bit like... Yeah, it's a great story. That nutrient cycling story is something that most people don't think about. But uh, here on the North Coast, we're familiar with that because bald eagles used to do the same thing. Uh, and, and they would bring fish, the nutrients from the marine system far inland by carrying fish out of the rivers up onto the ridge tops, And then and the, also the black bears. And the fish themselves uh, right. can be a source of marine nitrogen. Right. The salmon runs were essentially just a giant conveyor belt to push nitrogen up into the inland, right? And, yep. and, and all these predators would further distribute those nutrients into, you know, the right. terrestrial environment by catching them and then feeding on shore and defecating and urinating on shore, basically fertilizing. It. So, you know, when we think about, you know, ecosystem linkages and the fact that everything is connected, uh, you know, is something to consider. Yeah, the carbon sequestration angle is is kind of a new angle to me that, uh, you know, we, we used to think about nutrient cycling, you know, just in terms of the health of the trees and the ecosystem in general, but now it's taking on more of a global connotation because the, again, the redwood Redwood forest is becoming recognized as one of the great ways of sequestering carbon. Redwood trees are extremely good at, at yep. locking carbon up for long periods of time, yep. more so than most trees. So and lo that, lots of lots of it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, large. Well, they're very big. They're very big, and they live a long time. And um, but they need access to the nutrients to make that yeah. work. So yeah. the the lack of salmon in the rivers is now emerging as an enormous 
problem. Uh, you know, we knew it was a problem, but we didn't really know that it was connected to the climate. And now, oh, yeah. now losing salmon out of the, the rivers is uh, going to impair our ability to sequester carbon in the Not forest. just salmon. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's all connected. Think about the oceans and think about these herring and capelin and sandlands that the otters rely heavily on. And, and marine, marine seabirds also, I mean, they mm -hmm. do the same thing. Uh, type of fertilization on the rookeries. Uh, these fish are disappearing because uh, our sea surface temperatures are increasing, right? We have the blob. We are all familiar with, with a really high sea surface temperature in, in the Gulf of Alaska and, and North Pacific. And so these fish are no longer as abundant and common as they were. We see a lot of uh, you know, seals and sea lions and seabirds die-offs. That also translates to die-offs of river otters. And so basically mm -hmm. that link, you know, the link between fertilizing the trees and carbon sequestration, it's a, it's a back, backwards loop again. Mm -hmm. So we are dealing, you know, to, to try and model all of this, and we have tried, uh, is extremely complicated. Uh, and, you know, people say, oh, you know, how much nitrogen can autos bring to shore? And we've calculated it. We have estimated it. And when you look at the length of shoreline and how many points of land have auto latrines on them, it is a huge area. And it is a lot of, of carbon sequestration capacity that autos influence. And so, you know, we have to start thinking about things really broadly and not necessarily one segment at a time oh well that's year. a great a great message and uh, and a great way to wrap up this fascinating interview i'm afraid that we are pretty much out of time uh dr ben david it has been wonderful speaking with you and hearing about river otters and i think that we will need to have some information uh, we'll put information on our website for people to find out more because there's obviously a lot more to to learn about these terrific creatures. Uh, so our website is ecologyhour.wordpress.com and uh, I'll get some links from Dr. Ben David to put on there where people can find more information. And thank you very much everyone for listening. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Marav. Thank you, it was very fun. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.